Lord. We thank you that we indeed are yours. We thank you that that transforming work is not because of our acts of obedience or our trying to do better. But Lord, we thank you that it's because of your love and your grace being poured out upon us. We thank you that it's the leading of your Holy Spirit and us simply responding. Father, I pray, Lord, tonight as we go to your word, that, Lord, you would continue to transform us, Lord, as you renew our minds, Lord, as you minister to us from your living, breathing word. Father, touch every single heart that is here. We thank you and praise you, Lord. We're desperate for you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Grab a seat. If you don't have a Bible, again, just raise your hand. We'll be happy to get you one. It's a lot easier to follow along if you got one, so raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home or you like that one better, please take it as our gift. And go ahead and turn to Numbers 35, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Numbers 35. Tonight I titled the message, Jesus Our Refuge. And one of the things I love about Numbers, like I do every book in the Bible, but I've really been loving just going verse-by-verse through Numbers, and we've been going for, I don't know what, about nine months now, as we go chapter by chapter. And it's just been great to really see how God had a perfect plan for the children of Israel, and yet how God allowed them to have free will and to make their own choices. And how they made choices that caused them harm. They made choices that caused them to miss out on God's highest. And now as we're coming down to these final two chapters of this incredible book, we're going to look at the finishing up of their wandering in the wilderness as God prepares them to bring them into that promised land. The land that He had promised to the first generation, but they had missed out on. And again, we've seen 40 years of wandering, we've seen them murmur, we've seen them rebel, we've seen them in sin. And sometimes we look at it and we might think, what has this got to do with me? But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking exactly of the things that happen in the book of Numbers, it says to them that these things were written for your own admonishment. The things that are written in the book of Numbers are to apply to us today. Though written 3,400 years ago, it applies to our lives just as much today. And so not only do we learn from watching them, but we have things that we can apply practically to our own lives. And so as we've gone through numbers again, we've seen so much of, one, we've seen just the the revelation of the Lord, and we'll talk about that in a moment. We've also seen just how easily we can get our eyes off of God if we put our eyes on the world, even for a moment. Because remember, the, the children of Israel, what do they do? They began by lusting after evil things. They fell into idol worship. They fell into sexual immorality. They even tempted the Lord at one point. And we saw them complaining against God and trying to overthrow those who God had put into authority. And they first they began by, uh, again, looking at those who God had given them to lead them and looking even at the Shekinah glory of the Lord and saying, that's not enough for me. I've got a better plan than God. There's nothing new under the sun. People don't want to read the Bible. They want to go their own way and then they wonder why they struggle. And we see the example in Numbers for each and every one of us. A book began by numbering of the people, showing us that we're accountable. God knows exactly what you're doing with your life. Did you know that? And you know what? He desires to do great and awesome things in and through you. But God will never force us to do it. He then encamps them in the cross. Again, we see the Lord, a picture of Him. And they're camped in a perfect cross as they went through the, the wilderness. When the Lord looked down and saw them moving, He saw the cross. And praise the Lord as He looks down on us, He sees us through the cross. We saw them under the cloud so that the Lord was leading and guiding and directing their every step. When they woke up in the morning, the first thing they did was they they would have to look up to see if the Shekinah glory of the cloud of God, His presence, had moved because they followed the Lord wherever He led. A picture of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
that we might begin our days looking up, saying, Lord, where do you want me? What, how do you want to use my life, Lord? How do you want to lead? How do you want to guide? How do you want to direct? But sadly, once they got to the border of where God had promised to take them, we know what happened. They said, oh, you know, let's send spies in. Because, you know what, it might be a little rougher in there than we anticipated. They've been complaining all the way. They finally get there and the, we know 12 spies are sent in and 10 come back and say, there's giants in the land. And instead of obeying the word of God, they listened to the words of men and they said, we're not going in. And so then what happened was that entire generation passed away as they wandered in the wilderness. What happened? They set their mind on their circumstances instead of putting them on God. Can I tell you that that's probably 90% of our problem? We set our mind on our circumstances and we take our eyes off of God. If we keep our eyes on Him, we realize, my God is the creator of the universe. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's my, you know, Almighty God is my best friend. What do I have to worry about? But if we look at the world, it's so easy to listen to the spies and fall into the trap. Galatians, Galatians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above instead of the things of the earth. If God promises us something, we can trust Him. Then Moses, they began to murmur against Him. Now, not only did they murmur against God, but three million whiners going through the wilderness, murmuring against Moses, and even his own brother and sister try to overthrow him. They get struck with leprosy. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram got 250 leaders on their side, thought they were going to overwhelm them, and God opened up the ground and swallowed them, and then brought fire down on the rest of them. Again, we see that God has a perfect plan, and God's plan is going to be done with or without us. Amen? He doesn't need us, we need Him. And when the Lord, we need to say, Lord, I want to be a part of it. I don't want to miss out on it. An entire generation missed out because they didn't trust God's Word. And that's why it's so great you're here on a Wednesday night, because you're getting to study God's Word so that you can better trust His Word, so you can better walk in His Word. Even after they had victory, we know what happened, that they had a victory over the Canaanites finally. That generation finally came back to the same spot. And then right after that, they began to murmur against God again. And when they did, He brought serpents into the camp. And the serpents began to bite them. And they had to look up at the bronze pole, and we'll talk about that. But then we saw them continually, again and again, being unequally yoked with the world, and then falling into the temptation when, when Balaam and Bala got together and sent the Moabite women into the camp. And you just see this repeated, just mistake after mistake after mistake, and it always happens when they get their eyes off of God. And you read the Bible sometimes, and you think, man, those Israelites were the biggest bunch of knuckleheads that ever lived. But you know what? When I read about them, I think about me, because I blow it. How about you, amen? You're walking with the Lord, and then you lose faith for a moment, and you get your eyes on the world, and you start doubting God and not trusting Him, and the Lord has to sometimes bring serpents in the camp to get us to look up again, amen? Sometimes we have to go through a trial, and sometimes we have to learn to trust in the Lord, and the Lord's feeding them from the sky, and He's taking care of their every need, and the kind of glory of God is there, and they're still missing out on God's highest. But what we've also seen as we've been traveling through the wilderness is that clear picture. I won't take a lot of time because I've talked about it a lot. But just how it's a clear type of our walk. How Egypt was bondage to the world, delivered out of that bondage through Passover, a picture of the cross. Through the Red Sea, a picture of baptism. The wilderness being those trials and difficulties we go through in life. The Jordan River, a picture of spirit, Holy Spirit baptism. And then entering into God's highest. And so all of that along the way in the wilderness are the trials of life that happen when we don't put God first. When we keep putting ourselves first and seeking our own way and we miss out on God's highest. So praise God that there's more, that God wants to do more with us. Praise God that He's not through with any of us or we wouldn't be in the room right now. And then finally, as they're about to enter in, right before we come to this chapter, we saw how two and a half of the tribes were happy not going into the land of promise. 
They'd already wiped out the enemy all they, outside of the land. All they had to do was enter in. And yet, just like the previous generation, two and a half tribes said, you know what, we're just going to stay right out here. You know, this land's already been conquered by God. It looks really sweet. It's great for cattle. It's really cheap to live here, right? We're going to stay where it's easy instead of going where God wants us to be. And they camped outside, and we're going to see some of the consequences of that tonight. And then we saw also the thing that I love the most, probably about the entire book, along with all those other things I've talked about, is that we see Jesus all over this book. People think, oh man, the Old Testament's boring, it's old. Oh man, you know, who, what does that got to do with me? Can I tell you, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let me give you some examples. We're going to see one t- real clear one tonight. But number one, they were encamped in the cross. That points to Christ. Moses, the deliverer, sent in to bring them out of bondage. Picture of Christ. The tabernacle, those of you who are here, we went through Exodus. The tabernacle is the Lord, every piece of furniture. Who's the light of the world? Jesus Christ, golden lampstand. Who's the bread of life? The table of showbread? Jesus Christ. Who's the one who intercedes on our behalf? Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus Christ. The, even the cloth that they use and every single piece of, a, of furniture and ornament, all of it points to the Lord. What an awesome thing. Then we move on and we see the sacrifices, which, all of which point to Jesus Christ. The glory of God dwelling in their midst, pointing again to Jesus Christ. The rock that was smote and water poured out. Who's the rock? Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ on the cross was pierced, water poured out of His side. It was a picture of the cross 1,400 years before Jesus came to earth. The bronze serpent that I talked about. Remember, they put a serpent on a pole. They held it up. Bronze is a picture of, or a type of what in the Bible? Sin or judgment, right? And so they held this bronze pole up. As long as they held it up. I want my microphone. Sorry about that. That'll be great on radio. Um, as long as they held up that pole, as long the poles held up, as soon as they looked up to the pole, the snakes that bit them, they would be healed. If they refused to look up, they would die. And, and a lot of people struggle. Why would you look at a serpent, which is a picture of sin, or even a type of Satan, right? In the Garden of Eden, he, he appeared as a serpent. It's a picture of sin. But the Bible says, He that knew no sin became sin for us. And so it's a picture of the cross. We also saw Jesus appearing before Balaam. Remember when the donkey was going along? And it says the angel of the Lord, and I believe that that's a Christophany. So Jesus actually appears to Balaam. And Balaam doesn't see him, but the donkey does. And the Bible even tells us the rocks will cry out his name, amen? Creation knows who he is even more than we do, because he created it, right? And so we see very clearly that, you know, that God, the Lord is appearing over and over. And then lastly, we saw that Moses is a type of the law. And Moses could not bring them into the land of promise, remember? Because the law can't get us into heaven. The law can reveal our sin, but it can't get us into heaven. Who's the one that would bring them in? Who took Moses' place? What's his name? Joshua. Joshua. Joshua's name is Yahshua. Yahshua is Jesus. Or the Lord is salvation. His name is Jesus. And Joshua, a picture of Christ, that the law can't get us into heaven. Only Jesus can. So we've seen the Lord all over the book of Numbers. And I love it. And tonight we're going to see maybe the greatest picture yet in Jesus our refuge. Because we're going to see how He's the one we run to. And He's the only place of safety. And He's the only place that we're caught up in our sin and there's no other answer and there's no other hope. There is one place we can always go and there's one place that will always be safe. And that's in Christ. And that's what this chapter is very much about. So first we're just going to see God's provision and placement of the Levites, those in ministry. And then the rest of the chapter we're going to look at God's prophetic picture of Christ in the cities of refuge, a place where the guilty can run and find safety. So the title of the message is Jesus, Our Refuge. Let's begin in verse 1. And we're looking now at the cities of the Levites. 
He's already given the, you know, where everybody's going to live and the, the land that was for them. And by the way, we talked about this last week. He gave them the boundaries of the promised land and we talked about the fact that they never went in entirely to the land he gave them. And I thought about myself. You know, am I doing all that God has for me? Am I missing out on, on what God has for me, for my family, for our church? And they, God said, here's what I have for you and they took part of it. Lord, help me take all that you have for me. And I'm not talking about stuff. I'm talking about calling and about being used for His glory. So now we come to the next chapter, and He's speaking to them about the Levites. Look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying... So where are they? They're getting ready. They're at the very last spot before they enter into the land of promise. They're right in front of the Jordan. They're getting ready to enter in in the plains of Moab, gathered just outside about to cross over in. And the Lord says to them in verse 2, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession. And you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for their animals. Now, why did God command each of the tribes to give a part of their land to the Levites? Because the Levites didn't have an inheritance. If you'll recall earlier in Numbers chapter 18, he told the Levites, I'm your portion, I'm your inheritance. These were the guys who were, you know, for, the, for a lack of a better term, were in full-time ministry. These guys were the priests. These guys were the ones serving in the tabernacle. That was their full-time job, and God didn't want them to be distracted by chasing after the world. So he said, look, I'm not even going to give you any land. I'm not going to give you any kind of physical inheritance here and now. I'm your inheritance. And I'll tell you what, that's a great place to be. Amen? Where your whole focus, your whole passion, your whole inheritance comes in Christ, not in the things of the world. And we can learn by what God is showing these men. And the priests were these servants. And again, he said, you know what? I'm going to give you a place to live. And, I, and he goes to those who have land. And he says, I want you to give them a common land just outside of your cities. And I want you to give it to them that they might have a place for their cattle, a place for them to live, a place for their provision. Again, for those in ministry. So where does the provision for those in full-time ministry come from? It comes from the rest of the people. The rest of the people say, hey, they're the ones interceding on our behalf before the Lord. They're the ones making the sacrifices to God. So we are the ones that are called by God to provide for them from what God has given us. And so it's a very clear picture, again, of God's desire for people, to use God's people to minister to those in ministry. Now, why no specific land of their own? These guys are dedicating their entire lives to serving God and ministering to His people. I, I hinted at it, but I think there's even more to it. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Look at verse 4 and 5. The common land of the cities which you give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outside a thousand cubits all around, and you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, on the north side 2,000 cubits, and the city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common land for their, from their cities. Now, a cubit is an inexact measurement because it was the distance from your elbow to, to the tip of your finger. So depending on how tall you were, if you were Goliath, right, a cubit was, I don't know, three feet or something, right? But for most people, it's about 18 inches. So with that assumption, he was saying, you're going to go about 1,500 feet outside of the city, and from that point forward, 
You're going to take about 3,000 feet surrounding it on all sides, and that's going to be the grazing land for the Levites. You give that to them, that's a place where they can, you know, have their herds and things like that. Now, the Levites were not allowed to plant anything. The Levites were not allowed to farm or have gardens or anything. Why? Because they were supposed to be given of the first fruits of ministry from the people. So they, had to re- they, they were not to go out and you know, be plowing a field over here because then they'd be distracted from what God called them to do. So they were supposed to eat of the first fruits of what the people provided for them. And he said, this is what's going to happen outside of your cities. And he commanded them to give it to them. Notice the Lord said, you give it to them. And he told them exactly what it would be. Why? Because he knew if he didn't tell them what to give them, they might not give them much. Right? I mean, how do we respond? If the Lord didn't tell us what to give, we'd be like, I'm thinking a buck a week, right? That's probably good. And well, I'm giving, right? It's not about the proportion, right? And the reality is that, you know what? Don't ever give out of contrition. Don't ever give because a man told you to give. You give because the Holy Spirit's moving on your heart. Amen? And you give because you love the Lord and you realize it's all His. And they were to give of their first fruits, and the Lord said, this is the land that you're going to give to them. Now, we're going to talk about why He spreads them out and look at the cities. Now, among the cities which you will give the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to which a manslayer may flee. And to those you add 42 cities. So all the cities which you give to the Levites shall be 48 cities. These you shall give with their common land. And the cities which you shall give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many. From the smaller you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. So they give proportionately to what they have. And notice what he does is there's 48 cities and he's going to spread the Levites throughout the people. Now, why does he do that? Why doesn't he have all the Levites in one territory by themselves? He takes them and he spreads them throughout the entire population of people. And the larger portions had more cities within them, and the smaller portions, the smaller populations had less cities within them. It reflects God's desire to evenly distribute the Levites among the people so that all might have access to ministry. If he put them all in one spot, the people that were furthest away would get ministered to the least, right? Right. But instead, he said, you know what? I'm going to put them all right among you, right next to you, right around you, so they can constantly be there to minister to every single one of you. Again, all in their own region, nobody would be able to get to them. So their influence could be distributed throughout the whole nation. Now, the Bible says that you and I are a royal what? Priesthood. And God desires to take you and me and not have us all living in one state together. Amen? God doesn't want us all moving to Utah. Right? God doesn't want us all moving to some city and, okay, we're going we're gonna to turn this into the most Christian city around again. We should, I'd love to see Santa Cruz be the most Christian city around, but because people are getting saved, not because all the Christians are moving in. Amen? And that God wants to turn people's lives around, not us transport everybody into town. And so what he's telling them, look, you guys be spread out. And you've heard this analogy from me many times. You've been coming any length of time. The city does not put all the lampposts on one corner. Amen? Because if it did, you'd have one halogen light glowing on one street corner, and the rest of the city would be dark. They take the lights, and they spread them out all over the city. And God does the same with us. He takes us and He spreads us out where we work and where we live and your neighborhood and your place of work. And sometimes you might say, well, I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood or I'm the only Christian where I work. Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Because God put you there to be salt and light of that place. 
Again, God, God doesn't intend to, for all of us just to be living in spiritual bliss, waiting for Him to come back in a Christian city. But instead, He desires that we reach out and minister to the whole world. He desires to put us in, we're all in ministry. If you're born again, you're in it. And He wants us to do the work, to share the Lord, to be salt and light, to be available, and to reach people that your pastor will never meet. Reach people that Billy Graham will never get a chance to talk to. You're the only Billy Graham in your office. Amen? He's probably not coming to your office to do a, do a crusade anytime soon. He's probably not going to be in your neighborhood anytime soon. Amen? But you're there. And God has you there for a reason. And I just wrote down some quick examples. I thought about, you know, our youth pastor Vince works in a rental office. And all day long, people are coming in to rent apartments. There's a divine appointment after divine appointment after divine appointment. I thought about... Steve and Terry and my wife Lynette and Stephanie and Nancy and others who all work at Baymont, and though that's a Christian school, they're called to be there to be salt and light because certainly there are people there that don't know the Lord. I thought about Justice and Anthony and others who go to Cabrillo and other, all of you that go to Cabrillo College. You're called there to be salt and light. You're called there certainly to do your education as unto the Lord and, and, and learn the things that you're there to study, but you know what? The number one reason you're there is to be an example of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Amen? Because that's eternal. What you get in history is not. Amen? Now, do your history class as unto the Lord. But at the same time, that stuff is passing away. I think about some of you work in restaurants and gas stations and dental offices. And again, in your school, your office, your neighborhood. And I'll tell you what, it's a great day when you finally realize that you're in the ministry. A friend of mine once told me this, and it was like somebody hit me in the head with a mallet. I used to always say, one of these days when I'm in the ministry, and I meant full time. And at the time, he said, no, wait a minute, back up the truck. Look. So Dave, you teach the men's ministry, right? Every, every two, yeah. And you teach a Bible study where you work? Yeah. And you're, you're the youth pastor? Yeah. And you teach Sundays and Wednesdays when the pastor's out of town? Yeah. And you teach in the prison every week? Yeah. What do you think you're doing now? <laughs> what do you mean when you get into the ministry? Ministry's not a destination, it's a way of life, and we're all in it, Amen. And I tell you, it's a great day, and it's a revelation when you think, quit saying, well, one of these days down the road, when I'm in the ministry, you're already in it. Once you got saved, that was, you're in, right? And so now it's okay, wake up in the morning and start praying for your mission field. Start praying for your coworkers. Start praying for the other students in your class. Start praying for your neighbors. And watch what God will do if you'll just be available and say, Lord, use me. And so we see that the Levites are scattered throughout the people. And we, a royal priesthood, are scattered throughout the people. And just as God is using them, He desires to use us. Now, we move on from God's provision and placement of those in ministry, provided for them, and He spread them out and put them in the place where He could use them. And now we're going to see His prophetic picture of Christ in these cities of refuge. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. So the first thing we see is the purpose and the reason these cities exist. What we've got to understand is, with the children of Israel, there was no police force. No chief of police, no police force. No real, quote, government the way we would think of it. It was Moses and then Joshua. And God was the head. And what he said was, look, I want you to create these cities of refuge because there are going to be people who are manslayers. Now, that's where we get the word for manslaughter. It means to kill somebody by accident. Okay? Now, in Genesis 9, it says, Whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. 
And so what happened in those days, because there was no police force, every family had what was called an avenger. And his job was, if somebody in their family was slain by somebody else, his job was to go out and kill that person. That's pretty heavy, right? So, somebody comes in and kills someone in my family, I'm literally bound to go hunt them down and, and not to cease until they die. And this was not against the law because this was the law. And so it says he sets up these cities of refuge to say, well, wait a minute, if a manslayer, someone who slays somebody by accident, there needs to be a court of appeal for these people. Because what if, I don't know, two of these guys are out and they're cutting down trees with axes. And somebody's axe handle flies off while he's chopping down a tree and it strikes the other guy in the chest and kills him. It's an accidental death, but they might think it was real. So what does this guy do? Where does he go? Where does he turn when he's guilty? Where does he go for a court of appeal? And he says to them, create these cities of refuge that he may flee there. So the avenger is coming after him and he's going to run to the city where he can stand before those who will give him a fair trial because the Levites are the ones who are there. They're the priests who are there and they'll come before them and there they'll be able to make a judgment as to whether or not the person is guilty. Look at verse 12. There shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. You know what? Court and jury trials came from the Bible. It's right here. This is it. Everything that we do, the Lord created. Amen? So what happened was they brought him before the congregation. The people would sit there and he'd say, Hey, I was swinging my axe and the axe handle came off and it hit him. And, and they have to look and they look at their heart and we'll see that in a minute, their motivation before it. But if he runs to that city of refuge, there he's safe and there he can stand trial and there we can find out what his real heart and his real motives were. Now notice, we'll talk more about that, but notice that they place the cities, where they place them. And this is really key. I want you to see this because all of this points to Jesus. Look at verse 13. And of the cities which you give, you shall give six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. Now, there's six cities of refuge. If you look on a map, the cities you find in Joshua 20, it's Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. Now, what's interesting is on the east side, how many tribes stayed outside of the land of promise? How many were there? Two and a half. And they had three cities of refuge. And on the other side, you had nine and a half, and they had three cities of refuge. And I'm telling you what I believe and why I believe that's true, because I believe there was a lot more crime and a lot more problems and a lot more death outside the land of promise. I believe the two and a half tribes had way more problems than the nine and a half tribes that obeyed the Lord and walked in the center of His will and stepped across the Jordan. And the guys that stayed on the outside were getting attacked by the enemies and they were bickering amongst each other. Why? Because they were outside of God's will. We get outside of God's will, we're going to have a lot more problems if we're walking in the center of it. Amen? And so they had three cities on the outside. And these cities were placed in such a way that if you look on a map, to go to a city of refuge, no matter where you were, Amongst the children of Israel, you would not have to cross a river, climb over a mountain, or do anything like that to get there. It was always level ground from wherever you were to a city of refuge. Why is that significant? I believe that it shows the easiness of the access to the city of refuge. And that's a big deal if the avenger's chasing you with an axe. Amen? It's good to know there's no mountains between me and the city of refuge. Amen? It's good to know I don't have to put my boots on the 
do any work, and I'm not climbing up any stuff, and I'm not having to swim across a raging river or anything like that. Why do I think this is significant? Because again, I believe this points to Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is our refuge, it says in Hebrews chapter 6. And He's available, He's nearby, and no work is required to come to Him. Amen? We don't have to swim across any rivers. We don't have to climb up any mountains. We don't have to put on any boots. We don't have to do anything. We just need to turn to Him. It says in Romans chapter 10, verses 6, it says, Who can ascend into heaven? You know, who can come to God through their own works, their own enlightenment? Nobody. Who will descend into the depths to bring Christ up? You know, who will go into deeper knowledge and try to grasp Him? It says, The Word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see any work going on in there? Now, do we as believers have righteous fruit in our lives? Absolutely. But we don't work so God will love us. We work because He loves us. Amen? We're not, it's not faith plus works or faith or works. It's faith that works, right? Because when we fall in love with the Lord, the faith is a natural outpouring of the works, is, excuse me, and, and again, by our fruit they shall know us. And so it's a free gift, not a paycheck, and the fact that it was totally level ground from wherever you were, anywhere in Israel, to the closest city of refuge, and the city of refuge being a picture of Jesus Christ, tells me yet again, and points yet again to our Lord, and it's not works, it's just turning to Him and running to Him. And you know what, if you run to Him, His arms will always be open. Our Lord's always there desiring for us just to turn to Him and say, Lord, I need you. He's right there. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's a great and awesome God. Verse 13, or 15, excuse me. These six cities shall be your refuge for the children of Israel and for the stranger, for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. So the city of refuge is not just for the children of Israel. It's for anybody. Just like Jesus did not come just to save some, it is desire that none should perish, no, not one. Amen? His desire is that Jew, Greek, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, whatever your background is, God doesn't care about your economic background, He doesn't care where your ancestors are from, He doesn't care what color your skin is, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Amen? And God wants a relationship with every single one of us. When we're all, if we will accept Him as Savior, we become His children. We're all adopted into His family. We're brothers and sisters. Amen? We're, re- we're related spiritually. And so the Lord, I love this, anyone, any stranger, any sojourner, anybody who wanted to, not just the children of Israel, someone could be passing through the land and they could run to the city of refuge and they too would be safe there. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. Verse 16. Now watch this. We saw those who were eligible for protection, which is anybody, and we saw why he placed them in places that were easy to get to. Again, his desire that anybody could come to him. And we saw that they were placed throughout the land and they were easily accessible. But now we're going to talk about how to judge if death was truly murder or not. And again, this is from the Bible 3,400 years ago, and we still use this today. Now sadly, we don't judge it the way we should, but we, this is supposed to be the standard. Verse 16, but if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. So one way you can find out if, if somebody is a murderer or, a man, or using manslaughter, if they do it by accident, is the tool that is used. To me, how can you have manslaughter with a shotgun? Thinking that's pretty hard, right? 
Unless you just set it down and it goes off and kills somebody by accident. But the same is true here. With iron, he's saying if you take an, an iron thing in your hand and hit someone over the head with it, whether you meant to kill them or not, that's murder. Because you've taken an instrument that will cause great harm. And so this was the example. If the guy used iron in his hands, that's murder. That's it, okay? Verse 17, if he strikes him with a stone in the hand by which one could die, and he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. You know what? These are words that people don't like to hear today. But can I tell you right now that God is for the death penalty? It's all over the Bible. Now, does he love murderers? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Yes, he does. He loves them all. He hates, our, he, he hates the sin and loves the sinner, amen? And I did prison ministry for four and a half years, and I loved going into the, when they would let me, I would go into death row and talk to these guys in lockdown and couldn't get out of there, and I would share that with them the love of Jesus Christ. And I believe they can absolutely be saved. But you know what? Because we can be born again does not mean that our sin doesn't still have consequences. Amen? And you know what? The reality is that it is a deterrent if it is taken out, if the action is taken out. Now again, some people struggle with that. Well, how would a loving God allow people to die? Why would people kill those created in God's image? Those who do that, again, the Bible says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And it says those who take wreak vengeance that it will be brought upon them. Again, that's not our job. That's the government's job. Amen? We leave it in their hands. We don't go out and wreak vengeance. We give that to the Lord. But again, a lot of people really struggle with that. They just don't, oh, that's just not right. Can I tell you there's a difference between killing and murder? Murder is when you go out and purposely bring bodily harm to somebody in anger or with the, you know, you see the motives and you see the heart. Killing can be righteous and it can be just. Would it be righteous to, for somebody to kill Osama bin Laden after what he did in, on 9-11? Would that be righteous? I believe absolutely. Why? Because it's not murder, it's the consequences of sin. And we see the Lord throughout His Word, and I know a lot of people in this room probably struggling with that, but you know what? Our God is righteous, amen? And He's holy, and His judgment is true. And it's not the judgment on earth that matters, it's the judgment on, uh, before God that matters, amen? And I've witnessed the guys who were on death row who knew the Lord and had peace. And I've witnessed the people who are out in the world who have millions of dollars and don't have any peace, Amen? Because peace doesn't come from where or how we die here, but where we live in eternity. Verse 18. If he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die and he dies, he's a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. Again, the avenger was then in his right to go and bring death upon that person. I promise you, can you imagine if that was the case today? Can you imagine if every time somebody killed somebody, they were put to death, things would change. (laughs) Things would absolutely change. Instead, what happens, oh, we got a 97 trials, and if you hire a good enough attorney, you know, you're out playing golf in six months, right? And, and the reality is that still you're going to face Almighty God one day. And nobody gets away with anything with the Creator of the universe. Verse 19, the avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. Now, we see the tools that are used that show murder. Now, look at the heart that proves it to be murder. Again, this goes back to what we now would call motive. Look at verse 20. If he pushes him out of hatred, or while lying in wait, hurls something at him so that he dies, or in enmity, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Murder. Judged by, again, the discerning of the person's heart. 
the premeditation to lie in wait and to kill somebody. That's why today we have first-degree, second-degree murder and manslaughter, right? If somebody premeditatedly goes, you know, it's not the axe handle. The guy's not chopping wood and accidentally it happens. Obviously, that's different. But see, we see here that God does judge between murder and manslaughter. And God does say that murder has consequences. You know what? God hates it when somebody kills somebody because He created all of us in His image. Amen? And we're killing one of His created beings. And so if someone kills somebody, they're killing somebody who potentially could even be his child. Again, the Lord would later say that if you had hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. May we be careful. Sometimes we look at this and say, what's this got to do with me? I'm not going to kill anybody. It's not likely I'm going to kill anybody. But the Bible says, if you have hatred in your heart toward another, you've committed murder. And you know what? A lot of times we harm people even more with our mouth than we might with an axe handle. Amen? We go around and we, we gossip about them. We tear down their reputation and, and we harm them with the things that are coming out of our mouth. And so he's telling them here again that murder has consequences and we need to be careful about how we treat others now because again, our sin will surely find us out. And the Lord does love us and he's gracious to forgive us, but there must be, again, a heart of repentance. Verse 22. However, he pushes him suddenly without enmity, this is manslaughter now, or throws anything out him at him without lying in wait, or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him, so that he dies, while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So again, if somebody's out you know, in the backyard throwing rocks, right? Or, you know, today shooting a pistol in the air, and the bullet comes down and hits somebody in the head, you know, again, that's different than somebody walking up to somebody and shooting them. Now, I want, to see, I want you to see again, though, that all this is going to point to our Savior yet again. Because here there's no premeditation. Here they need to be judged. So where do they run? Where do they run to be judged? Where do they run to have their, their sin brought before God? Where do they go? Where do they go to bring? And they go to the city of refuge. And the city of refuge is the place, again, that represents the Lord. Because the Bible says that Jesus is our refuge. And so where do we go? When we're guilty, to the Lord, to the city of refuge. We run to Him. He's a strong tower, and we can turn to Him anywhere and anytime. He's always near to us, desiring to minister to our hearts. Verse 25, So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there. Now watch this. He shall remain there until the death of the high priest who has been anointed with holy oil. What is that all about? So a guy comes and they, re- they say, you know what? He's innocent. He ran to the city of refuge. He was brought before the congregation. They've judged him as not being guilty. But he has to stay in the city of refuge until the high priest dies. Now, first of all, we see that, that when we kill somebody or harm someone, even by accident, it still had a profound effect on our life. Even if you do it by accident, it still has a profound effect. Because for him to live, he had to leave everything, his family and everything, and go live in the city of refuge, and he had to stay in that city until the high priest died. Now, what is this a picture of? It's a picture of the Lord. Because it says the high priest who was anointed with oil. The anointing of oil in the Bible is a picture of what? What's oil a picture of? Holy Spirit. The one who's been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and as long as he lives, you're safe to live in the city of refuge. But once he dies, what happens? Let's take a look. It says then, but if the manslayer at any time, well, first of all, let me 
talk about this. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the city of refuge where he fled, the avenger of blood finds him outside the city of refuge. The avenger may kill the manslayer. He shall not be guilty of blood. So he's safe as long as he stays where? In the city. As long as he's in Christ, right? If we're in Christ, we're, we're safe. But as soon as, you know, if we choose not to walk in Christ, if we choose not to find our refuge and our hope and our peace in Him, then our sin will have consequences that will separate us from God for eternity. And what he's saying here is, look, if the guy stays in the city until the high priest dies, then, we're going to see in a, in a couple of verses, he can go back home and live a normal life. But he can live and have life as long as the high priest is alive. Now, again, as long as you're in Christ, if you've been born again, and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, then you're, you ha- you're in Christ. Amen? But, here's the thing. If we do not, if it were not for the cross, if it were not for the fact that the high priest died, that we might have eternal life. Amen? That's where we are set free from our sin completely. They were, he was there waiting for the high priest to die. And when the high priest died, he could then go home. It might be a year, five years, ten years, twenty years, but it's pointing again to our Lord. Because... We, as we live, we're in Christ, but because of His death on the cross, we're going to be set free from all sin and death at the end of this life. Amen? And then we're going to spend eternity with Almighty God. And praise God that He is our great high priest. The high priest's life kept Him safe, and the high priest's death set Him free and removed the penalty. Look at verse 28. Because He should have remained in the city, and then verse 29 says, And these things shall be a statute of judgment, to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So because he should have remained in the city until the death of the priest, but after his death, he was able to return. And he says, this is going to be judgment for you for all, for all generations in your dwelling. And so what he tells them is, if you will stay and you will remain there and you won't try to leave and you'll be obedient to the Lord and you'll wait for the death of the high priest and you'll keep watching for that, then you'll be set free and you can return to the land that you came from. But, if you don't care about the death of the high priest, and it just doesn't mean anything to you, eh, whatever, I don't care. That high priest thinks for somebody else. It's not for me. The cross of Christ, well, that's good for you, but I'm not into that. And I'm just going to go live my own life, and I'm not even going to worry about it. It says those who leave that city of refuge and those who are not concerned about the death of the high priest, the death will come upon them. As soon as they come out, now it's open game. And the same is true for us. If we're not resting in the Lord, if we're not looking to the death of the high priest who suffered and died that we might have eternal life, we're going to miss out on God's highest. So let me give you a few things here real quick. If you're taking notes, city of refuge, pictures of Christ. And I'm going to give you several. Number one, first of all, we saw in four, I want to just re, uh, reiterate that He is our refuge. It says in Psalm 46 that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Where can we turn in the midst of difficulty? To the Lord. And He's always there to help. Fifteen other times in Psalms, it speaks of God as being our refuge. In Hebrews 16, it speaks of Jesus being our refuge. God is our refuge in the Old Testament. Jesus is our refuge in the New Testament. That's because Jesus is God. Amen? Now, both Jesus and the city of refuge are within reach for all who have need. Talked about that, right? Easy access. So they could run to the city of refuge. It was not difficult to get there. Didn't have to climb over any mountains. Didn't have to swim across any rushing rivers. Just make the decision, I'm going there. And they could get there quickly. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Both Jesus and the city of refuge were open to all, not just the Israelites. The city of refuge was available to anybody who wanted to come in. 
And it was available to anybody. It's available to anybody today. The Bible says of the Lord that He desires that none should perish, no, not one. Both Jesus and the city of refuge became a place where the one in need would live. When you come to Christ, you don't just visit Him. Amen? You don't just show up and say, hey, yeah, I met Christ this weekend. I came to know Him as my Savior, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Amen? It's not just somebody I visit for an hour a week. It's not just somebody who, you know, I know about, but my life's been transformed. I'm a new creation in Christ, and He lives in me. And so the city of refuge, they came and they lived in that city, lived in Christ in that sense. And that's what we do. We don't visit Him, we live there. He becomes a part of who we are. We give our lives completely to Him. We're His children. It's not a person or a place we visit. It's a Savior who comes into our life and rules and reigns. Both are only hope for the one in need. The manslayer, if he went anywhere else, he was dead. He could climb trees. The avenger would find him, right? He could hide in someone's house. The guy could come in, drag him out, and kill him. But if he went to the city of refuge, then he was safe. The same is true for us. You can turn to Buddha, and you're going to die. You can turn to Muhammad, and you're going to die. You can turn to your career. You can turn to the pursuit of money. You can turn to anything else, and nothing else will bring safety and bring regeneration and, and uh, give you life. And so the only place they could turn was the city of refuge. The only place we can turn is to Jesus. Amen? So those, those two, again, very clearly a picture of the Lord. Both provide protection only within their boundaries, but if we leave them, the result is death. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Amen? So within the boundaries, safety, you go outside. If you reject the cross, you reject the Lord. With both Jesus and the city of refuge, you had full freedom upon the death of the high priest. Who is our great high priest? Jesus Christ. Where is he now? Seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us daily. Does it blow your mind that Jesus prays for you? It's what he does. It says he's interceding for you daily. Accusations come from the enemy, things that, and he's, I, I took care of that. I covered that. Took care of that on the cross. Paid in full. To Talistai, amen? And praise God that he intercedes on our behalf. And that's where the Lord is right now. And praise God. And we know that. Remember when Stephen died? He looked up into heaven. Remember he was being stoned to death and he saw Jesus standing. God gave him a standing ovation. I absolutely believe that. Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father and He stood up to enter Stephen in. That's where the Lord is. He's not hanging on the cross anymore, amen? Right. He's not in the tomb anymore. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And praise God that again, freedom came through the death of the high priest. That person was delivered and the same is true of us. One major difference that we see between the city of refuge and the Lord. The city of refuge is only for the one who committed manslaughter. The cross is for the murderer too, Amen? cross is for everybody. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's only a few sins? You, you know, I'll cover those five. You commit one of the other ones, you're done. Praise the Lord that all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, but if we believe in Christ, He'll forgive it all. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. There's no sin you can commit that Christ will not forgive you if you come to Him. What a great and awesome God we serve. But we see in the city of refuge all over. He's our Lord, our Savior, our God, and our refuge. Last few verses. Look at the laws regarding murder. And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, 
The murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Notice that before they would kill somebody and put them to death, there had to be at least two witnesses. And one of the witnesses had to be willing to throw the first stone. So they had to be really, you know, they had to be willing to pick up the first rock and there had to be more than one witness. And you know what? It would be good for us to remember that as Christians when we hear somebody talking about somebody and we only hear it from one person. Amen? First of all, a lot of times we don't need any witnesses when we're prosecuting somebody, right? We hear from one person gossiping to five other people and before we know it, we're, we're tearing down someone's reputation. You know what? The Bible says in, in 1 Timothy not to receive, receive an accusation against an elder or a brother in the Lord except for by two or three witnesses. Again, we murder people's reputation listening to the, what one person has to say. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Brought her before the Lord? And he said to her, you know, he said to the men, what did he say? Let he was what? Without sin, cast the first stone. He's talking about the very same sin. Whichever one of you guys isn't an adulterer, you say your witnesses, you throw the first stone. The same thing is being said here, that, that if you bring someone before, there has to be more than one witness, and one of them has to be convinced enough that they're willing to pick up the rock and throw it at him. Verse 31. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So the guy can't buy his way out of it no matter how rich he is. Now that's changed. <laughs> Amen? That's changed. Got a running back running around playing golf somewhere, right? Verse 32. And you shall make, take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So also, the manslayer who killed somebody by accident cannot write a check so that he can leave the city of refuge and go home before the high priest dies. Only through the death of the high priest is he set free. You and I can't pay enough money to be saved. We cannot work enough. We can't do enough. The only way we can be saved is through the death of the high priest, who is Jesus Christ. And he's saying to them, you cannot do it any other way. You can't bribe. You can't write a check. You can't pay a ransom. For you and I, it's not a ransom. It's redemption. Amen? We're saved through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, not because we paid something to be saved. Verse 33. So you shall not pollute the land where you are for blood defiles the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which i dwell for i the lord dwell among the children of israel now we see here that not only can we not buy our way out but the murders that take place in that city are going to have an impact on that place and he's saying until that blood is taken care of that that land is defiled can I tell you that we live in a defiled country today? Amen? We are slaughtering, I don't know how many innocent babies every single year. That's murder. Amen? It's murder. It's not a choice. It's a child. You know, in the world we live in today, we're more worried about whales and trees than we are about babies. Something's wrong. And it tells us that we're, we've, we've turned our back on God. We've turned away from the truth. And he says here that that judgment's going to come upon that land that continues not to bring murders to justice. Now, I want to make it really clear. I'm not saying we should go bomb abortion clinics, all right? But you know what? The Lord's going to bring judgment upon them. And we need to peaceably stand up and say it's murder and say it's wrong. Slaughtering babies is wrong, amen? 
Praise God for what they're doing at the PRC. We should support that a thousand percent. Amen? Encourage you to go do the walk for life. Take a, you know what? These are babies that, that the Lord created in His image, in a mother's womb, and we can have an impact on these young women's lives to, to instead of killing a child, put them in a Christian environment where that baby's born and either raised by that parent or adopted into a Christian home. How much is a baby worth? Everything. Amen? And so our heart should be for that. And he says, look, you defile the land, it's going to bring judgment upon the land. Why do we struggle as a country? Because we've turned our back on God. They want to get, in God we trust, off of our money. You know, we need to remind them this nation was founded on Christianity. Did you know that? That's an absolute fact. Most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, over 80% were born-again Christians, and a third of them were pastors. Did you know that? This country was founded on the truth. And what has happened is we've turned our back on God. We want to take God we trust, and we want to take the Ten Commandments out, and we're wondering why we're struggling as a nation. We're struggling because we've turned our back on the Lord. Unjudged murders defile a nation. Unjudged sin defiles a nation. And again, we should be reaching out to those folks and sharing the love of God with them, not walking around with our you know, self-righteous attitude. But here's what I want to say in closing. It says here that the murderer is guilty of death. And I talked to you about the murderer. The Lord still loves him. That's the difference between the city of refuge and the Lord. Whose place did Jesus take on the cross. What was the man's name? Barabbas. What was Barabbas going to be killed for? He was a what? He was a murderer. And I find it interesting that here's this one spot, right? The murderer is the one who the city of refuge would not save, but Jesus, our refuge, came and literally took the place of Barabbas, a murderer, to show us that he paid the price for all sin of all mankind. Amen? He took all the sin upon himself. And again, there was no ransom for that man. There was no money that could save him. There was nowhere for him to run. And Jesus came and paid the price. He, there was nowhere for, that, for a murderer to turn. But Jesus came and has paid the price for all of us. So, in closing, Jesus our refuge. God both provides for and places those He's called into ministry. God has placed you where you are for a reason. Start looking at your job as ministry. Start looking at the place where you live as ministry. Start looking at your neighbors. You know what? I I kid you not. Start praying when you go to the grocery store. You think I'm kidding. Pray, Lord, give me an opportunity to share with somebody. There are literally people in this church right now that I met at work when I was working. One of our assistant pastors was in the Bible study I taught at Pac Bell. I mean, Sean and Jelaine Waltrip, I met him, I was selling Yellow Page ads to him. I mean, go out and say, okay, divine appointments today. Amen? I'm not just selling stuff. I'm not just going to pound nails. But God, I know that as I'm driving around in my car and I'm in the grocery store and I'm at the dry cleaners, that you're going to bring divine appointments and give me eyes to see them. Because God has spread us out all over Santa Cruz County for a reason. God puts you where He wants you to be salt and light. Second of all, not only does God provide for in places where He wants to use us, but Jesus is our refuge. We are all guilty. We had no place to run because we're as guilty as that murderer. Amen? And we were sinners. But praise God, even though we had no ransom that we could pay for our sin, that our good deeds wouldn't be good enough, we couldn't raise enough money because there isn't enough money, Jesus came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. We weren't ransomed, we were redeemed. And it's not something we worked for. It would be a paycheck if it were. It's a free gift that came through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And praise God for the city of refuge and the picture that we see because the Lord is available. He wants us just to come to Him. He says, I love you. Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I love you. You're my, 
I want you to be my child. I want to adopt you into my family. And he would even say that to you that are born again, that are struggling tonight. If you've stepped out of walking with him and you're struggling in your walk, turn back to him, amen? He's a loving and a gracious God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your son. We thank you that he is our refuge. And we thank you, Lord, that we can turn to you. And it's not because we climbed a a mountain to Mecca or crawled across glass to prove our love for you. But Lord, you suffered and died to prove your love for us. Lord, all we need to do is turn to you. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here tonight, Lord, that's struggling in their walk, that Lord, your word tonight would encourage and strengthen them to know that you love them so very much. Lord, I thank you also that you've called each one of us into ministry. And Lord, you put us in the places where we are for a reason. May we start to look at our jobs and look at the places that we live as ministry and as callings. And Lord, give us divine appointments and help us not to miss them as we're led by your spirit. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.